You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Good morning. As we continue in our time of worship, if you would turn to John chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 45 to 53. And as you turn there, maybe you're not aware, but uh, there was a tragic shooting in Dadeville, 25 miles from here last night. And so as we come to our time of prayer, let's be remembering the victims' families, uh, those uh, who were harmed last night in a wicked and needless shooting, and be mindful that the only hope for this nation, for this world, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not politics, it's the gospel. And the secondary way, healthy churches. Healthy churches. There's nothing you could do that's more effective on your end than be immersed in a healthy church and being a vital part of that church and then taking that gospel that you are being trained in to your spheres of influence. So we're going to remember them in prayer as we come to that time after the scripture reading. So we're looking in verses 45 to 53. But for context, if you would look back at a text we saw last week, verse 41, Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him. And let him go. Let's pray. Father, we are comforted by those words this morning as we grieve the loss in Dadeville from last night. We're reminded that we have a Savior who raises the dead spiritually and one day physically. Because we have a Savior who was raised from the dead, having satisfied your wrath on sin for those who would trust in him. Lord, we pray right now in the grief of Dadeville that your comforts in Jesus Christ would delight and comfort the souls of those who are grieving. Pray you would provide for them tailor-made grace for their afflictions and pain. I pray that the, the evangelical churches there on the ground in Dadeville would be what those families need a church to be in this dark hour. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this occasion, this sad occasion that was birthed by wickedness to open up doors for the gospel. The gospel is our only hope. We confess that this morning. May we believe it even more after we consider this passage. We ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So this past Friday, <clears throat> April the 14th, was the ominous anniversary of the day when General Titus led his Roman troops into Jerusalem in 70 AD and ransacked the city. It was the time of Passover, three days before the Passover. And so there were a flood of pilgrims coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And, and the Romans appeared to be gracious in allowing them into the city. But once there, they shut the doors. They would not let them out. And then they surrounded the city. And in a five-month siege, they starved the people out. They let no supplies come in. And they absolutely destroyed the city and the temple. In fact, the only remnants of that temple today is the Western Wall, sometimes known as the Wailing Wall. Maybe you've been there. I've been there. As you see these Jews who appear to be hopeless in their prayers, crying out that God would send his Messiah. Such a tragedy because he has. But ironically, that invasion and that takeover by the Romans is exactly what the Jewish leaders in our passage today are trying to prevent. That very thing. What we see today is that these Jewish leaders who actually have the opportunity to embrace the true king the true government, the government of God, uh, instead of choosing him and experiencing what is real freedom, comprehensive freedom, they foolishly maintain their costume jewelry freedom, if you will, uh, a masquerade freedom that they believe can only be maintained by manipulation and politics. And having rejected the true king, the true Messiah, these Jews would go on to follow false messiahs. You see, we were hardwired for the Messiah. Every human being, even the most ardent atheist, has been constituted by God for the Messiah. And so if we reject the Messiah, we will fill that void with a Messiah replacement. It's the way we're wired. Nature abhors a vacuum. And so these Jews and, and the Jewish people would go on to follow these false messiahs who would lead them in a revolt against Rome, which would ultimately end up uh, tragically uh, to the destruction of Jerusalem. Of course, the context for this passage uh, we just saw is the raising of Lazarus. And predictably, it's caused a buzz. It's caused a buzz throughout Judea. If you would look with me in verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, Jesus believed in him. This is the purpose 
of the sign miracles. And the raising of Lazarus was the seventh and the greatest of the sign miracles. In fact, John writes about these sign miracles, and he says at the end of his gospel, John 20, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. It's the purpose for which he writes, so that we would believe. And so we are to consider what the Scripture, in this case, the Gospel of John, has to say about who Jesus is. And most recently, Martha has confessed, you are Lord, you are Christ, you are the Son of God who has come into the world. And we're also to consider what he has done. And most recently, in John, he has raised Lazarus from the dead, which was actually a sign pointing to a greater resurrection, Jesus' own resurrection from the dead after he satisfied God's wrath on sin for those who would believe. The resurrection is the receipt that the debt has been paid. And we are to behold that resurrection and we are to believe. We are called by John to believe, which means to commit your life to the life giver, the Lord Jesus Christ. But not all who will believe. And that brings us to our first point in this passage. Not all will believe because... They are blind to the significance of Jesus' works. Look with me in verse 46. So some believe, verse 45, but some of them, that is, those who had not believed, went to the Pharisees. It's like the hall monitors, right? And told them what Jesus had done. Now, this section is going to give us a vivid portrayal, a portrait of just how deeply seated the sin of unbelief is. I mean, fallen humanity's unbelief is a much deadlier disease than any of us realize. For instance, in Luke 16... I believe that to be a parable, but it may not be a parable, but I tend to think it's a parable. It's not a big deal whether it's a parable. It's still the Word of God. This former rich man who is now in, in, in Sheol, who is in Hades, he comes to Father Abraham and he makes the appeal. Send someone, raised from the dead to my brothers. Send Lazarus, and they will believe. They'll repent. Abraham said if, if they... Don't believe what Moses and the scriptures have to say. They won't even believe if a man's raised from the dead. Well, most recently, Lazarus has come back from the dead. And as we saw in verse 45, some believed. But that was not the only response. Why is that? Because of sin-induced spiritual blindness. Without the regenerating, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, all believe, unbelievers, all unbelievers willfully 
and blindly suppress the truth for a lie. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Romans 1. And we saw that as recently as John chapter 9, after Jesus had healed the man who had been born blind. In verse 39, for judgment I came into the world, Jesus said, and that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Of course, they don't believe that. They see clearly. They are the committed ones. They are, they are more committed to the kingdom of God than anybody on the, on the planet. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. What did he mean there? He, he meant that if you realized your condition, you would flee to the one who can fix your condition. But you don't realize your condition. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. That's the condition. Well, notice in verse 47, these Pharisees have received word from these uh, people. And so the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council. Now, what is the council? That's the Sanhedrin made up of the high priest and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Strange company because they don't like each other. But the friend, the enemy to my enemy is a friend to me. And that's where they are. And they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And so the chief priests were the leading priests and were members along with the Pharisees to this Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. It was the highest ruling body of the Jews. They had responsibility of local rule over Judea in the Roman province, including in their responsibilities was they were to deal with issues related to violations of the, of the Mosaic law which is so ironic because no one could keep the law. In fact, every person who's ever lived breaks the law every day, and I would even submit every minute of the day. But they would deal with these issues of outward violations of the Mosaic law, and they would also deal with claims made by people who said that they were prophets or even Messiah figures. Though these two groups... Pharisees and the Sadducees were rivals. This collective group was considered to be the standard of external commitment to God. But here's the point I want to make. Their religious fervor and commitment did not make them one inch closer to the kingdom of God. Let me help you picture this. On February the 16th, an international flight left Auckland, New Zealand en route to Kennedy Airport in New York City. Eight hours into the flight, now that's a long time to fly, 
Those of you who have flown with me, you know that's a long time, especially if you're sitting next to me, Adam. Um, eight hours into the flight, they, were, they received word that Terminal 1 at Kennedy was being closed because of electrical fire. That was the terminal they were to fly into. Rather than diverting to another airport in the United States, the airport company's officials told them to turn back to Auckland, New Zealand. And so eight hours in the flight, they did a U-turn and flew eight hours back to Auckland, New Zealand. 16 hours in the air, they've not made one inch towards the Big Apple. These committed spiritual leaders, apparently faithful to the kingdom of God because of their works righteousness, had not made one inch towards the kingdom of God. Their religion, like every human merit religion, was transactional. What do I mean by that? Transactional religion is this. I do this for God. I do these things for God, and I merit his favor. That is transactional religion, and it is at the root of every religion in the world except Christianity. That is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness believes that you can actually give something and do something for God to earn his merit. But true righteousness recognizes we can only receive. It's all of grace. But how deceiving self-righteousness is. Earlier, these Jewish leaders had told the blind man who had his sight restored... We are disciples of Moses. In other words, we keep the law faithfully. We obey the law. We're disciples of Moses. You were born in utter sin. And you would teach us. Do you see what they're saying? They were right. The blind man was born in utter sin. But so were they. All mankind is born into a state of sin and misery. All mankind is born in Adam, the first transgressor. And so these people believe that there is sinners and those who follow the law. And Jesus goes on and says to these people in chapter 9, verse 41, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. That is, if you recognize your real condition, that that man's physical blindness is a, is a symbol, a, an example, a metaphor of your spiritual blindness. If you were really blind and recognized it, you would have no guilt but you, because you would come to the one who restores sight. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And, and their self-righteousness blinded them from being able to see that the very Old Testament that they thought they knew so well had prophesied about a Messiah who worked salvation by his merit, not their merit. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In fact, Isaiah says that in that day, when that Messiah would come, who would work salvation by his own work, Isaiah 35, then in that day, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. What has Jesus done? He's opened the eyes of the blind, that very thing. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man, has he healed a crippled man in John? I think so. Then the lame man leaped like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That day is here as evidenced by the signs of the Messiah. And I can't be completely sure of this, but I believe that deep down they have this fearful notion that he is the legitimate Messiah. But to embrace him would be costly to them. Now, why do I say that? Here's the reason I say that. They actually use the word signs. This man performs many signs. That's an important word. Let me give you the lexicon definition of signs. An event which points to a reality with even greater significance. Do you even realize the word significance, the root for that word is sign? And these people recognize he is performing signs. They recognize that what Jesus has been doing is significant. It is significant. But because of their blindness, but because of their idolatry, and their fear of losing what was most precious to them, their power, their prestige, their honor, their wealth. They want to squash him. They want to squash it. And I think this is common. This hasn't gone away. How many students have I met on the Auburn campus? You could multiply that for every campus in the world. But how many students have I met on the Auburn campus? Because all the studies and stats will show you, Auburn may be the most churched. As far as students go, they, they may have the, the most students with church backgrounds than any other university in the world apart from religious schools. And how many students have I met and they had a church background? They've been raised in the church. Some of them were raised by actually godly parents. And, and they recognize there's something unique about Jesus intellectually. They may even recognize that he is Lord and he is Savior intellectually. And yet, because of their fear of what that would mean in their moral lives, in their sex lives, in their relationships... What it would mean, they exchanged that truth about Jesus for a lie. It happens all the time. James Montgomery Boyce told of a woman uh, who he invited to church. And here's what she said. I'm afraid to go for fear I will get converted. 
Deep down, she, she believed that perhaps what the preacher is going to preach on is true. And yet, there was something she loved more. And so she was fearful of being converted to Christ. He also told us a story about a pastor friend who asked a wife one day, where has your husband been? I haven't seen him. And she responded, well, he's afraid to come. For when he comes and hears the word, it takes him nearly two weeks to get over it. It's kind of witty in a weird kind of way, but it's sad. How many people intellectually cannot deny Jesus just may be the Christ. He just may be the Son of God. He just may be Lord and Savior. But there's something I love too much that I'm not willing to repent of. And therefore, I'm going to ignore that. Or perhaps I'll get hostile towards that. Well, that's no different than the Sanhedrin here. To submit to Jesus would mean they have to give up some things, including perhaps their power and prestige. Well, notice in verse 48, we see that very thing. If we let him go on like this, if we let him keep performing these signs, everyone will believe in him. Everyone. They see something powerful about this man that er where increasing numbers are believing in him. And the Romans, here it is. This is what they don't want to give up. The Romans will come and take away both our place, that is the temple, and our nation. Here we see the central motivation of why the Jewish leaders hated Jesus. Right here in this verse. Jesus signs, and we might add his his messages about himself as the Savior and Lord and King. It was leading large numbers or increasing numbers of Jewish people to believe in him. If this continued, and here's how they are reasoning, it will certainly come to the notice of the Roman governor. And then we would be seen as a threat to Roman rule in Judea. Why? Because there's this growing sense that Jesus is the longed-for king. He is the long-awaited-for king, and that is leading to this groundswell of believing Jews who might claim sovereignty for the state of Israel over Rome. And if they do that, the Romans are going to come in and absolutely put an end to that. They would crush it. And if they crush it, guess what happens to the Sanhedrin? They lose their power. They lose their prestige. Again, that's the human condition. Because we've been hardwired for Christ, every single person in the world has been hardwired for Christ. That's why we do international missions. When we go, we're assuming that that person we are taking the gospel to overseas or in our community has been made for Jesus. 
All things have been made through Christ and for Christ. And so we've been hardwired for Christ. And so when you speak about Christ, many people, the intellectual lights begin to come on. But then they realize, man, if I submit to him, what's that going to do to my popularity in school? What's that going to do about my reputation on my ball team? What's that going to do about my career? That's where they are. And in the end, like all natural humanity, they thought their well-being would be preserved by their manipulation, their own cleverness of the, in, in their circumstances. And what they had clearly forgotten was that God had preserved Israel for centuries, not because of their manipulation. It was in spite of their manipulation. He had preserved them because of his promises to them. He had preserved them by his own sovereign, preserving hand of protection. And so a drastic resolution for their problem was proposed by the high priest, Caiaphas. And so we've seen in the first part of this passage, they were blind to the significance of Jesus' works. Here we see blindness to the significance of Caiaphas' words. Look with me in verse 49. But one of them, that is in the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, he was actually high priest 18 years. But when it says that year, it's referring to the year where Jesus would be crucified. He would be the high priest residing over that. Said to them in some ironic language, you know nothing at all. Now, why do I say it's ironic language? Because he was a Sadducee. The Sadducees, Acts 23 tells us clearly, they did not believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection. You've heard this, but that's why they were sad, you see. That's how you remember that, right? <laughs> they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They certainly didn't believe in a, a Messiah who would save them from their sins. And so this man actually knows nothing at all. And yet here he says, you know nothing at all. And yet, he speaks greater than he knows. In one of the remarkable texts of the, of the Bible, look with me in verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you. Now keep in mind, this is an unbeliever. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish can we say amen? Amen. He is using sacrificial language from the ceremonial sacrificial system. Jesus must die so that the nation might be saved. Is this the first century Billy Graham? Not quite. Because John is now going to give us a spirit-inspired interpretation. 
of what Caiaphas is saying here. In verse 51, he says, he did not say this of his own accord. In other words, he is speaking greater than he knows. He doesn't even realize how ironic this language is. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. There is ironic light here in this prophecy on the nature of Jesus' death. It's really a twofold light. First of all, from the human side, the death of Jesus would be the most wicked act in the history of the world. There has never been a more wicked and heinous act in the history of the world than the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ because at the cross, the only good man in history, truly good and righteous man, was put to death at the hands of sinful men. But from the divine side, this death was propitiation by substitution. Again, maybe that word propitiation is, is new to you. And, and we use that word because it's in the Bible. But propitiation means he would satisfy the wrath of God for sinners. And he would do it by substitution. And through this cross, the believer's sin, get this, through this cross, the believer's sin would be fully punished and fully pardoned. The cross, the substitution. Indeed, ironically, both Caiaphas and the apostle John, who gives us the interpretation of this, sees Jesus' death to be substitutionary. I met with a, a friend on Friday, and I told him, like, and I tell my kids this all the time, at the heart of the gospel is substitution. Don't forget that word. Either Jesus dies or the nation dies. That's what Caiaphas is saying. He is saying if he dies, though, the nation lives. And the key word here is the word for. That word for means in the place of. But here's the point John's making. Caiaphas is only thinking in political terms. He does not have the mind of Christ here. This is not the, God, the gospel of grace that Caiaphas is speaking. He is thinking politically. And John is saying, ironically, God has turned that prophecy on its head. Because John wants us to think about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world through his death, through his substitution. To use Caiaphas' language here, he, he, he dies. Notice verse 52, to gather into one. That is remarkable. Now, he, he's thinking in terms of all the Jews that have been scattered by the exile and, and by the Assyrians who depopulated them. He doesn't realize 
that he is prophesying that through Jesus' death, get this, Babel will be reversed. When God dispersed all the nations in judgment, through his death, Babel will be reversed and God will fulfill his promises to Abraham to be a light to the nations. Again, this is why we do international missions because God is true and faithful even to the prophecy of this false prophet. But notice in verse 53, we close here. From that day, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. By these plans to secure Abraham, or Jerusalem's safety, they actually will bring judgment on Jerusalem. When these leaders decide to put the Christ, the author of life, to death, God will withdraw his hedge and hand of protection. And since the fall of Jerusalem took place in 70 AD and began again on April the 14th of that year, and John is writing just after that, just a few years after that destruction of Jerusalem, the irony is certainly intentional. William Barclay says, the very steps they took to save their nation destroyed their nation. Let me give you just one application point from that. If you reject Jesus, even though you intellectually know he's Lord, he's Savior, he's the Son of God, but if you reject Jesus because you are trying to save something in your life that's more important to you than Jesus, whether it's popularity or pleasure, whatever it may be, in the end, you will leave Jesus and that thing you're trying to protect. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Aim at heaven. How do you aim at heaven? You come to Jesus. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. All the blessings that you could ever imagine. Aim at earth and you will get neither. That's where these Jewish leaders were and so many people since then. The death of Jesus would be the most heinous, wicked event in history. But make no mistake, it was not an accident. Do you know that God is sovereign even over evil? He doesn't unilaterally cause evil like he unilaterally causes good. But in some mysterious fashion, God is even sovereign over evil. He is of purer eyes than to behold evil and, 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 and wickedness. But he's sovereign over it in some mysterious fashion. That's why Paul can write, all things work together for the good for those who love him. Even the wicked things, even the evil things. We, we see it in Joseph's life when when. An event that wouldn't even make Jerry Springer. His brother sold him into slavery. And Joseph said to them, you, you didn't send me into Egypt. God sent me. They were culpable, 
but ultimately God was sovereign. And at the end of Genesis, he said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good, for the saving of many lives. Of course, the greatest example of that is the cross itself. Let me give you one verse, and we're going to come to the table. Peter preaching at Pentecost. To many of the people who were involved in the death of Jesus. Remember, there were those who brought the reports about Jesus to the Pharisees. They were involved. Here's what he said. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It wasn't an accident. It was the plan of the ages. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God, though, raised him up. God is sovereign over evil. Be encouraged by that. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's the word for us today. Maybe you're here today and you recognize, man, I've been taught about Jesus my whole life, but I've got this, this room in my life that, that I, I don't want him to be a part of. And, and hear me. If you continue to live that way, you're going to lose Jesus and what you're trying to hold on to. But also recognize the, church, the, the cross is the great event in history that demonstrates God can redeem even the most heinous evil and bring about the greatest good. Be encouraged by that. But most importantly, remember, it is through the cross. It is through his substitutionary work and only through his substitutionary work you can have your sins forgiven. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.